Okay, and if you could rise for the reading of God's word, we're going to be back in Habakkuk um, chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiganah. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Selah. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You tripped the sheath from your bow. Calling for many arrows, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Thanks be to God for his word. You can be seated. Amen. Thank you, Jeremy and Liz, for all you do for the church family and for leading our small group so well. So what do you do in the difficult circumstances of life when you come up against a, say, challenging situation or perhaps that you're wrestling with what to do and you get answers and you don't particularly like those answers or you're frustrated, a whole host of scenarios where you say things just aren't coming together for me. Have you ever taken a moment to kind of follow through on what your, your natural, emotional, or practical progression is? If you're like me, mine often goes, I'm ashamed to say, something like this. I might be inclined to complain about what's happening, uh, make my opinion heard. Uh, perhaps I do get a little bit grumpy 
you know, a bit sad, like, you know, don't go around Austin right now, he's not that pleasant. Uh, perhaps you get stressed, uh, you're anxious, you know, these uh, new watches, I've got a, you know, kind of strange relationship with new watches, I'll just be sitting at my desk stewing, and it'll tell me, you know, you better take a break, your stress level's a little high, <laughs> whatever it might be that's on my mind. Perhaps you're the kind of energetic type that uh, when you're faced with that dilemma, you call a council of friends and you try to deliberate or whatever it might be, you say, I just wonder in that. In that movement, okay, here's the problem. Here's what I'm sensing. Uh, complaining, grumpiness, stress, questioning. Somewhere in your progression, at what point do you get to prayer? At what point do you say, I'm going to pause and talk to God? And what I worry, uh, what I fear, because it's true in my own life, is that actually it's, it's an embarrassingly low on the kind of sheet of to-dos in the difficult situations of life. And today I hope we see actually here's a man who asks the big questions of his time. He's wrestling with the deepest questions really anyone can wrestle with is, uh, how's this all going to shake out? that he's looking around at his own moral landscape and he's basically saying, God, I don't understand this. Uh, won't you do something? Why are you so slow? Won't there be a, a reconciliation? Won't there be just judgment? And what you'll find out is as we read through this, what begins with questions, again, you're looking at why in the world would we be studying Habakkuk, you know, is this the most relevant thing we can be doing with our times? Maybe you're here today and you, you're not just asking questions about the non-believing culture, but there are questions even within what the church is doing to see that that's not a new problem, that Habakkuk raised these questions about his own people. Well, have we forgotten God? Why are we so duplicitous? Why do we plow through doing our own thing when we're claiming claiming to know God and then ignoring his will. And in the outworking of this, from the opening questions, there's been some pretty big statements for uh, followers of the true God to, to kind of plant their feet. So firstly, uh, we know that sin will be judged. So you remember, again, the introduction. How long, God, how long are you going to put up with this? To which God answers, oh, I'm working. He's working in a way that Habakkuk doesn't understand, chapter 1 and verse 5, a way that astounds him because the answer to it is, I'm going to take care of the iniquity among the people of God by raising up a non-believing nation, the Babylonians here called the Chaldeans, uh, that they're going to sweep in and kind of prune the people of God, and that's going to be a form of judgment upon those who are hypocritical. To which Habakkuk says, well, God... How are you going to do that? I mean, I know we don't have our act together, but how can you use a heathen nation to come in on us? What about them? When are they going to get justice? And that's most of chapter 2. Don't worry about the Babylonians, that they'll be judged as well. As will every culture, and our tilt is certainly towards the Babylonian inclination towards self-sufficiency, isn't it? That that's the Babylonian kind of what, what's the real problem. It's self-preoccupation. It's, look what I've built, look what I've done, I don't need God, we're doing pretty well ourselves. And he said, that maps on fairly well to our culture. We'll do it ourselves. And God says, they'll be judged too, those series of woes. So sin will be judged. Again, today you're looking out at the world saying, what gives? What's God doing? Is he going to work? Will everything be set right? Yes, sin will be judged. And to put it more positively, the world will be set right. 
that deep feeling inside each one of us to say, oh, wouldn't there be a time and a place where everything would be right? Like our last hymn, what's called the hymn of heaven, right? We look forward to the day where everything's going to be put right. Habakkuk, God tells Habakkuk, who tells us, God's working. Sin will be judged. The world will be put right. And then verse 14 of chapter 2, you say, well, what's it really? What's a, you know, zoom out, the big picture of all history. Chapter 2 and verse 14 is it. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That this is the great look at the future. That there will be a day where everybody knows the weightiness of God. That's the word for glory. It's really the significance, the majesty, the, 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 the colossal majesty of God, that there'll be a day where every creature of God acknowledges that, hopefully, as many as possible, the elect willingly, but even those who say no will know exactly the weightiness and the significance of God. In other words, God will receive glory. Sin will be judged. The world will be set right. God will receive glory. And so the question becomes, well, what do we do now? I mean, here we are. Those are, those are great truths, but what about us? I mean, here we are. How do we get on day to day? Chapter 2 and verse 4. But the righteous shall live by faith. Remember talking about that last week? I think the but is crucial. Because again, the default mode of our hearts, I'm much more like a Babylonian than I am. I'm naturally not a God's man. I'm naturally a Babylonian. Hey, look at what I'm able to do. No, no, actually, the one who's in right relationship with God lives by faith. And you remember, there's kind of a twofold meaning to that little phrase, live by faith. Both it's coming to God by faith uh, to see what he's done in Jesus, that I don't bring my own credentials to the table, so to speak, and say, God, I deserve to, to be accepted by you, but rather to say he's come down, he's condescended graciously in Jesus, and I can receive him by faith. We come to God by faith, not of ourselves, but of him. And then the living by faith is really a commitment to ongoing faithfulness. We come to God by faith, and we live by faithfulness. I think this is why Paul will use that wonderful phrase, the obedience of faith. That you've given us the obedience of faith. Yes, a saving faith, but then an ongoing faithfulness to God's word. So think of all the areas where we're going to be, basically, have an opportunity to do this sexual ethics. How different is a Christian sexual ethic? Well, you've got a choice. We can do what our flesh tells us to feel good and say, well, there's really no reckoning. The things that we've learned from Habakkuk really aren't true. I'm going to plow through. Or we can say, no, but the righteous, we live by faith. We trust God's word. Uh, whether it's even things like my money, you know, do I see that as something to be stewarded, entrusted to me by the creator of the universe? Or rather, is it just mine to kind of expend on my own pleasures? No, but the righteous will live by faith. And accompanying this charge to faith is where I think we get to chapter 3 and the idea of prayer. The chapter 3 begins simply a prayer of Habakkuk. So do you see why this to some of us, might be a counterintuitive thing to do. Think of what he's done. He's raised the big questions. What are you doing, God? I haven't heard anything. God responds in a way that astounds the prophet. Can it be? And he wrestles with the gravity of the human predicament, and on his way out of it, he resolves to pray. That he prays in difficult times. And I think that's our first point here from Habakkuk in chapter 3, that in hard times... 
In times where there are big questions and weighty answers, God's people pray. And so, God's people, it's good for us to pray in challenging situations. comes right out of the prophet's biography. So what is our first response? Is it all kinds of human emotions, or is it rather to call on the name of the Lord? And that's a good definition. Maybe we'll start there. Well, what about prayer? You know, people get very caught up on this. You know, what is it? Is God in the, you know, in the genie bottle, and you just have something that you want, and you, you, know, you, you consult the oracle, or you rub the lamp, and then that's how prayer is supposed to work? Say, no, this man, Millar, he did a great study, biblical theology of prayer, and he says, prayer is calling on God to come through on his promise calling on God that is in conformity with God's revealed word, the Bible. And isn't that exactly what Habakkuk is doing? He's saying, God, I, I'm, this, this is tough and complex, and I'm intimidated by all of it, yet I know who you are. Is it time yet, God? Is it time where you're going to be delivering on these promises? Oh, Lord, may it be now. So prayer is calling on God to come through on his promise even in the most difficult situations of life. Three features, then, of this prayer, and I think all prayer, which are great for our congregation. Firstly, Habakkuk's prayer is saturated with Scripture. So this week, you can have a look at Psalm 77, for example. Psalm 77 from verse 16. And as you read those verses, you say, well, this maps on very well to Habakkuk 3. Likewise, this language of Mount Paran, you say, well, it's got real echoes to Deuteronomy 33. You say, as if Habakkuk had those passages in mind, even as he was praying what we have in our text here. You say, that's exactly right. That he prays the word of God back to God in a way to say, I know this is true, and, and I, I'm, I'm re revisiting the attributes and the truths of who you are, and I'm praying it over my current situation. Now, maybe you're here today and you say, well, I could never come to a corporate prayer meeting. Um, I would be so intimidated. I, I wouldn't know what to say. I might put my foot in my mouth. How do I know whether I'm praying for the right? You know, will the others think that I'm silly? Will I be asking for trivial things? All those kinds of questions to say, wait, I can pray scripture. I can read a psalm. I can read one of Paul's prayers. And insofar as they reveal the will of God and his attributes, I then pray them over my own situation and over my church family. So praying scripture is something that a follower of the true God ought to do. That's what he's doing. Tough times, what does he do? He revisits the revealed word of God, claims the promises of God, and kind of inserts them into his current predicament. So we must pray scripture. I'll give you an example in the benediction. All right, secondly, that this prayer, say, well, what does it do? It really orients the believer in the creature-creator relationship. What is blurred in our hearts is this relationship between God and us. It's the Babylonian complex, right? Well, God isn't that great. Uh, I really, he's just kind of a, uh, you know, another chap on the corner uh, the corner block or whatever it would be. I, you know, I'm pretty good myself. So in our flesh, we collapse the creator-creature divide. There's not that much difference between us and the Lord. Whereas prayer, what I think it does, is says, wait a second. I'm a needy creature. I'm actually very dependent on my creator. He's high and lifted up. He's made everything. Isn't the psalm here in chapter 3 saturated with this kind of language that God's created everything? Take a look, look again, verses 2 and 3 and 4. 
that the majesty of God is on display. He's the covenantal God, Yahweh. That's the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That his splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. That in other words, the prayer positions the prophet in the entire, uh, basically the entire relationship of who God is and human beings are. So it goes something like this. I'm looking, I'm reading the news as you do. I'm pretty upset. God, what are you doing? I'd do a better job if I was calling the shots. Wait a second, don't go there, pray. God, you made me. You love the people here more than I ever could. I know that you're sovereign and that you're a covenantal God and that you're powerful enough to work your purposes even in these very painful things. Help me insofar as I'm your creature to be faithful to you. So I think a biblical prayer, the prayer of the prophet, as he moves through the questions to the difficult answers, comes back to a prayer that's saturated in the promises of God and in the attributes of God. He prays them into the situation, reminding himself of who God really is and who he really is. And then last feature of the prayer, I think, is that you'll, we'll talk more about this next week, but ultimately, prayers help align align what we're doing with God's ultimate plan. Or you could say it's kind of an aligning of the wills, that when I come into my prayer, I'm not sure that I'm aligned with the Lord, but as I listen to his voice, as I remind myself of who he is, that I'm able to come under him. So I ask you, sometimes it will, will come to me this way, say, well, I'm not the praying type because prayer doesn't work. Say, well, what do you mean by prayer working? If what you mean by working is that you ask for something that is fleshly, God, I'd like a bigger house, you know, Avon, I need a better community, whatever it might be, and God says no, I'll say, well, that prayer did work, and God told you no correctly. But if you say, well, if the main point of the prayer is to pray the promises that God has made in his word over the current circumstances of life, that in my prayer, I'm recalibrated to who he is and who I am, and I come under his will by virtue of praying that prayer. You say prayer, prayer works. Prayer always works. That an attentive God who says, my people can talk to me, it's an invitation to pray. And when we do, especially in hard times, that we find ourselves receiving peace and comfort. What great words, peace and comfort. I have many stories over the years. I'll just uh, share two with you. Very practical, I think, in my, my line of work. Uh, some years ago, I was down participating in a, in a very nice uh, wedding. It was down at the Ritz-Carlton. And I, I remember I wasn't giving the main homily. I had, a, I had another part in the ceremony. But nevertheless, I was there. And a pastor that I very much esteemed, he's been a pastor at least 40 years. He was in his early 70s. I think many of you would know him. And this is the only time this has happened, so don't worry if you're a bride-to-be, but the, uh, the photographer had the wrong date. And so we're there, and the hours come, and everybody's like, well, the photographer is pretty important. Uh, we're going to wait. And we waited and waited and waited. And the guests are agitated. You know, everybody's a little bit on edge, and, you know, you're just sitting, kind of keeping everybody calm. And the older pastor came to me and gave me a great gift. You might see it's an unexpected gift, but this is what he said. I'm feeling very nervous. Will you come over with me and pray? And I said, this man who I so deeply admired, who I thought, well, at this point in the game, he would never be nervous about anything. We went over and prayed, 
and we're flooded once again, as we have been many times with peace and with God's comfort. Another example, um, I was down at the, at the Barley House. Um, do you know where that is? You surprised? Oh, last, 9 o'clock was very shocked I was at the Barley House. Uh, you, you're more my people. No, uh, so I was down at the Barley House uh, on West 6th for a Christian event. A Christian businessman was speaking, and I had brought a friend along. And the uh, Christian businessman, I don't remember the talk, but at the Q&A, you know, uh, they asked him. Somebody said, well, how do you make big decisions at your company. I mean, you've got a lot on your shoulders, you know, all these employees. When you come to the crossroads, what do you do? To which the speaker said, well, the first thing I do is I pray. And I'm watching the faces in the room, and I'm like, oh, man, they were not expecting that answer at all. But I thought that's, that's exactly right, that there is an attentive God who invites his children to communicate with him, to recall his character and his promises, to reassert who he is and who we are, to bring us underneath his wings of protection. And when we do that, that we're flooded with peace and with comfort. One more word on this, uh, Habakkuk chapter 3. You probably notice there are some interesting features of it, namely, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. No one knows exactly what Shigianoth is. Uh, but it seems to be a musical term. And certainly the Selahs, outside of the Psalms, I think this is the only place you get the Selahs. And then if there's, you know, beyond all doubt, is the very last words of Habakkuk's prophecy to the choir master with stringed instruments. In other words, this prayer was a song that God's people sing. We sing the truths of God. Why? Because it's something that we can all do together, that it brings us together, that it's more memorable when we have the gift of music. Now, if you think about this, prayerfulness and singing, isn't that what the church in difficult times, wouldn't we like to be known by those types of things? Like, here's the difficult, I can be embittered, I can feel a victim, I can get agitated, or I can pray and we can sing. And I think the church should pray and sing the truths of God, being in complete comfort of who he is and what he's doing. In hard times, God's people, we pray. Now, what about the content of the prayer? The content of the prayer, really, this is wish that a, a, any preacher could convey about the power, as Jeremy shared, the power and majesty of God, but we can say that it's really a, a prayer about the past, the present, and the future. That the word everlasting or eternal three times in verse 6, right? God measured the earth. He just looked and shook the nations. Do you love that? One little look from God and the nations shake. But then you've got the eternal mountains, the everlasting hills, and the everlasting ways. In other words, making a great claim that God has no beginning and no end. And I think in a lot of good prayers that you have a recollection of God's past faithfulness, a call to present faithfulness, and a future expectation of a guaranteed hope. So first, the past. As you're reading this, so much about water, rivers and seas uh, being divided and split. What gives? Well, you say anybody who's at all in Israelite history would have known what that's about. That was about their redemption story. It's about being delivered through the Red Sea at the Exodus. You remember when we talked about the Exodus, extraordinary story that God liberates his people but there comes a point in chapter 14 of Exodus where the Egyptian armies on one side, which is vastly outnumbered with their chariots, the great weapon of war, 
in the ancient world, the Egyptian chariot, all of them are on one side, and here are the Israelites with their children and old, you know, old and young and everybody else, and they got the Red Sea on one side, and they've got the Egyptian army on the other side, and the, in English, it's, they're completely, they're hemmed in. They're shut in. There's no way out. Um, we're not going to make it out of this. We've, we've got no levers to pull. But God makes a way in the sea. He splits the waters and he brings his people through and swallows up the enemy. That's exactly what Habakkuk's recalling. God, there's been times before it looked like there were no answers. There were only questions. And you made a way and liberated your people and established them. A great recollection of the past. The plagues, the language in verse, uh, which verses of the pestilence and the plague, of course, once again, takes us right to the exodus. And what's so interesting about this, why the Bible is one story, not many stories, but you ever think about how an Israelite would have described what happened in the desert and through the Red Sea and how a Christian talks today? They're very similar. I was trapped. I was trapped in my own sin. I had a record that I was embarrassed of. I felt the weight of guilt. There's nothing I could do to get out of my own way. I was hemmed in. But God in his kindness showed me Jesus. And he made a way and redeemed me and pulled me out. And now I'm rescued. God's in the redemption business. More on that in a moment. But there's a recollection, friends, of the past. God's been faithful. He's delivered his people. There are no difficult questions for him. And when we feel hemmed in, we do well to remember the past. How about the present? Habakkuk's prophecy is loaded with present faithfulness. 2-1, he'll take his stand at the watch post. Or how about the verse, I wish we would have talked more last week, 2 and verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, let God's people rest knowing he's in just the right place. Or 3 in verse 16, I will quietly wait. Then Habakkuk resolved to say, but the righteous shall live by faith. That I'm going to pledge to be a watchman in the challenging times, recalling what God has done in the past, always then with a look for the future. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble that will come when God's people, uh, when all people are rightly judged. There's a look to the future. Friends, I pray that comes as a comfort to you today. Whatever you're facing, say, wait, God's acted in the past. He's put forth Jesus. That's who I am. He's delivered us. In the present, we're going to be faithful. We're watchmen, seeing how God's working it all out, being on mission for him, knowing in the future that all things will be reconciled to him. So again, overview. In hard times, God's people pray. Prayer is about calling on God's name that he might come through on his promise now. It reflects on the attributes of who God is and who we are. A good prayer will remember what God's done in the past, a reflection on what we're called to do in the present, to live by faith, and the future guaranteed hope that God will reconcile all things. And then the final note about why, why is God bothered to do any of this? Have a look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. You see, I think Habakkuk's, you know, asking back in verse 8, well, God, why did you, you know, when you brought the Israelites through the sea, were you, did you have something against the water? Um, did, did, you, did you have something against the river? I mean, were, were you 
agitated at the, at the natural world? No, of course not. God did that, that his glory might be put on display by rescuing a people for himself. He went out for the salvation of his people, that God, the whole redemptive economy is so that God might draw in all those who are his so that he might be maximally glorified and that all his people might be in his kingdom at the great wedding feast at the end. God and his church must be about his business, which is about drawing others to Jesus. Not that we do that of our own, but he does that through our proclamation and our witness. One final note, and I'll land the plane. In Habakkuk's prayer about God's salvation, if you look at 3 and verse 2, I'll read it again. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In other words, God, again, claiming the promises of God. In the midst of the years, make it known. Then this phrase in wrath, remember mercy. I want to park here because I think this is a truth in every heart in this room and in fact in every human heart. The tension between just judgment and the cry for mercy and grace. Let's take as a test case, as a young man, let's say he's something like 17, he's a resident of Avon, or his parents are. And this young man's a real menace in our town. Let's say he goes around plundering the businesses. Really nasty young man. You know, he's robbing over Martin's Deli and so forth. And all the citizens of Avon basically will rise up and say, we need to do something about this young man because, you know, no society can thrive with this kind of lawless behavior. We must, we must bring just judgment to this young man. We've, we've got to take care of the problem. What we need is, is law. But a lot, as soon as that comes out and you see the boy's puerile face, there's an element of you that says, wow, I was 17 once and I made lots of mistakes and this young man has such a future that I get that he's not actually living admirably now and this cannot be sustainable, but there's got to be an element of grace. What do you do? Now you take that out to the cosmic level to say, isn't that kind of the way you see God in our relationship? I know Athanasius, the church father, he called this the divine dilemma. So we read something like Psalm 8, what's the crowning achievement of God's creation? It's humans. God loves his creatures. He made us, he endowed us with all these faculties. He's given us these machines called bodies and he's given his son for us and yet we still rebel. And you say, God, what, what's he doing? Is it judgment is the right thing to do, but also an element of grace and mercy. How do we balance just judgment and mercy? Is there anything in all the universe that could somehow get that tension exactly right to say, wow, there's human rebellion, but also, you know, an element of grace and restoration of mercy? Does, does anything offer that? You say, I think you know the answer, right? It's the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ says when you see Jesus, the only perfect one who ever lived, the only begotten Son of God, bloodied and embarrassed on the cross, betrayed by sinful men, hanging on the cross, you, have, you can say, wow, human rebellion is very serious. This takes transgression very seriously. That's your law. But it comes to the lawbreakers as mercy that we don't get hung on the cross insofar as we receive Jesus. 
that the blend of the just judgment of God in wrath, in your just judgment, God, please remember mercy on the cross of Christ. There is just judgment as the wrath of human iniquities poured out on the Son, but it comes to us as a gracious and merciful offer that we can receive Jesus and believe in him. And in the reconciliation of the world, this is precisely what is at stake. That I am rightfully judged, that my sin is serious, that Jesus absorbed the seriousness of my sin for me, and that I might have faith in him. Church family, I do pray once again today that you marvel at the grace and love of God, that he came down in Christ to rescue sinners like us and call us to himself, and we delight in that. The call today is to be a prayerful people, to remember what God has done, to be faithful in the present, to anticipate a reconciliation in the future, and to be about God's business, which is that many, as many as possible might come to know him. And if you're not a follower of Christ today, you've not surrendered to Jesus, I want you to think about where we're at as a culture. You, know, you say, okay, we've thrown God out. How's it going? What do you do when you're in a tough spot? Stress up, anxiety up, you know, unhappiness up, you know, consternation, people you love the most, dislike you the, le- you know, dislike you the most. Could there be a different way could you see that the problems in the world are really dealt with by the Lord Jesus and that the invitation to follow him and receive him, to say there can be justice and mercy in the cross of Christ, that you receive Jesus. You become committed to following him. You live by the obedience of faith and are put on mission in this great adventure. So I'll pray as Pastor Jim and the team come up. Father, we do thank you for Habakkuk chapter 3. That We have questions. How long, Lord? Won't you do something about this? How disappointing. God, why, how long will you do nothing? Oh, I see, God, you are working. Why, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Oh, but Lord, I remember that you're holy and you're just and you're good and you're sovereign. You control all things to your glory and our good. Lord, help me to rest in what you're doing and may I live by faith, both receiving you by faith continually, but then living in obedient faith. And Lord, somehow that as we do that as your people, that we would show the world uh, this great, (laughs) the resolution in Jesus of the great dilemma between just judgment and unmerited favor of our maker. So Lord, may we delight in the gospel today. May we delight in the gift of prayer. Help us to sing with our hearts, to be a cheerful people because of what you've done for us, having the certain hope of your deliverance ultimately in the future. Amen.